All right. Um, good morning. Do me a favor. Can everyone just stand up where they are? We're going to do a little activity. Don't worry. It's not going to involve too much physical activity. Just, just stand up, just stand up, just stand up. It's good. Just keep you warm, hopefully. Now, stay standing, okay, if you've ever had one of those dreams where you're trying to run, but it's like your feet are stuck in the mud and everything is like slow motion. You can't get anywhere. Stay standing if you've ever had one of those dreams. Oh, wow. I'm surprised how many of you are sitting down. I thought everyone had those dreams. But it's a good half of you. Okay, have a seat, everyone. Um, apparently, it's quite a common theme. Um, these dreams where, or it's not necessarily you're trying to run. I don't know those of you who sat down, whether you're, you're like trying to dial a number. Have you ever tried to do that? Or sit an exam? And for some reason, my, my daughter Emily is doing her HSC at the moment. I still occasionally get dreams where I have to sit the HSC, except I'm 45 years old in the dream, and I'm thinking, why am I sitting the HSC again? And every time you sit an exam in the dream, it's like everything has gone out the window. You're trying to write, but you can't recall anything. The same kind of dream. Do you, you guys know what I mean? You're trying to run, but you can't run. You're trying to dial a number, and the, the numbers are just getting jumbled up, and you can't get it out, whether it's a pin number or triple zero, or you're writing, trying to sit an exam, and nothing is happening. And it just feels like so frustrating because you want to do something. You want to run. You want to dial a number. You want to sit that exam. You want to recall, but nothing is happening. I reckon it's how it sort of life feels like at the moment after these lockdowns. Did you kind of get what I mean? After this year, doesn't life feel a little bit like that? You, finally, lockdown is finished. You want to get up and going and just seems like your feet are stuck in the mud. And especially, I think spiritually, we want to re-engage. We want to come back to church. It's a great thing. You know it's good, but even getting... I mean, I'm preaching to the converted, you guys who are here, but it, it can be really hard, right? So hard to be motivated, so hard to move. Now, those of you who are in leadership, in ministry, at church, you might especially be feeling that lack of motivation and, and persevering, running to the end of the year is really difficult. I mean, it's hard enough to get ourselves going. It's so hard to get others that you lead going. So as we think about relaunching after the lockdown at the end of 2021, as we look forward to the new year, this feeling of being stuck, of being weary, I think you'll agree that it's, it's dangerous, it's difficult, because how can we look onwards and outwards, even look towards the new year if we're like this? How can we as followers of Jesus or as a church, as SWEC, be on mission in the new year, when spiritually we kind of just want to stay curled up in bed. So how do we do that? How do we actually relaunch? Well, the answer is, of course, the gospel. I know it sounds like a standard pat answer, but it really is the good news of Jesus, the gospel. The good news is not just the way you get in the Christian life, it's the way that you continue on in the Christian life. What we need is to be renewed by this gospel. I want to show you a quote from Pastor Tim Keller. And he says this, When the dynamics of gospel renewal are not in place, a church may increase in numbers but not in vitality. It may grow but fail to produce real fruit that has lasting results. It will exhibit symptoms of lifelessness. Most or all of the growth will happen through transfer, not conversion. 
Because no deep conviction of sin or repentance occurs, few people will attest to dramatically changed lives. Church growth, if it does occur, will make no impact on the local social order because its participants do not carry their Christian faith into their work, their use of monetary resources, or their public lives. However, with gospel renewal dynamics strong in our hearts and in our churches, our lives and our congregations will be empowered and made beautiful by the Spirit of God. In other words, when gospel renewal is in place, all of those things are turned around. And so that's why this last Bible talk series this year until Christmas, and in fact, the first series we're going to kind of kick off next year with, will sort of be on this, how the gospel, how gospel renewal can make us spiritually ready to relaunch and re-engage after how difficult this year and last year have been. So let me just give you a series plan for the next few weeks. We're going to look today at gospel renewing life next week in time for baptism on repentance, then ministry, then holiness, and then finally hope. All right, we're going to get into the first one today. Let me pray and we'll get into point number one. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would relaunch us by your Holy Spirit, making the gospel real and fresh in our hearts this morning. Amen. Now, we read 1 Thessalonians because we're actually going to use 1 Thessalonians in this whole series, not preaching it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which is what we usually do with books of the Bible. We're going to kind of springboard off 1 Thessalonians and use it as a, as a, as a point to, to glean and harvest what it was like for these early Christians in the ancient Greece city of Thessalonica. Um, and the reason we're doing it with this church and this short letter is because this ancient church is a model church. You got that? It's a model church. You might have noticed in verses 7 and 8 that Pastor Marshall read earlier, Paul, who wrote the letter to them, said, You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And, and we read chapter 1 where you actually see all the elements of what makes for, you know, our key idea, gospel renewal. All the elements for a gospel renewed church, a gospel full Christian life, it's all there, right? Like, just pick it out. Um, they're chosen by God. They eagerly respond to the gospel message. They genuinely repent. We'll look at more of that next week. Their faith held on in spite of severe trials and suffering. Uh, they can't stop telling others and evangelizing others, right? This is what a gospel full life looks like. And particularly what we're going to look at is really just one verse today. Particularly what we see in verse 3 is their fruitfulness and their faithfulness. You got that? Their fruitfulness and faithfulness. And it's so much there that Paul, the writer, is just constantly filled with joy and thanksgiving every time he thinks about them, every time he prays for them, he's giving thanks because of their fruitfulness and faithfulness. So look at verse 2 again. He says, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Here's the key verse. We remember before God our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, there are three signs that they were fruitful and faithful. Their work, their labor, and their endurance. So what do they mean quickly? Their work, that's a catch-all word for good works. 
All right, the beautiful gospel-shaped lives of good deeds and good character and good witness. They had heaps of that. And then secondly, their labor. That's when you do stuff for the benefit of others. Um, we might call it ministry, but the word there is also labor, which means it's, the word literally means toil. Okay, it's backbreaking work. It's hard work. It's tiring. It's mentally, physically draining ministry and service. Those of you who are in leadership, those of you who are in parents, you know what that's like, right? Labor is hard. But then also endurance. They keep going. This is long-suffering. This is perseverance. This is putting up, pushing through the pain of not just ministry to others because it's toil and labor, but also the pain of just living as a Christian in spite of opposition, in spite of persecution, and sickness and suffering. Endurance, okay? You see, the Thessalonian Christians were fruitful and faithful in their work, labor, and endurance. It's nearly been two years since COVID. Well, it will be around March next year. In two years on, I wonder if you can look at your own life, if we can look around at our church's life and see that same kind of fruitfulness and faithfulness. That in spite of the last couple of years, can we look around at each other's lives and are we filled with thanksgiving every time we look at each other because there's so much fruit and there's so much faithfulness. In all honesty, even as I look at my own life over the last 18 months, two years, the answer is probably no, right? In some ways, I think COVID has actually put us individually, and not just our church, by the way, I'm talking to pastors, and it's everywhere, every church, we're in some sort of spiritual recession. You know what a recession is, right? When there's a slowing down, when there's a contraction, it's understandable that we're in a spiritual recession. We really are. So the question is then how? I mean, how can we relaunch reinvigorate our individual lives and our church life and our fruitfulness and faithfulness if we're in a spiritual recession. Well, if you know anything about economic recessions, you'll know the government can stimulate economic recovery in a recession. Three main ways it does that. It increases spending, it cuts taxes, and then it lowers interest rates. Okay, gross simplification, but basically those three things. Well, you know what? How does God stimulate people and his people and the church out of spiritual recession? Guess what? Three things. Also three things. And they're in verse three. And that's what we're going to focus on. What are they? Faith, love, and hope. Because remember, it's work produced by faith. It's labor prompted by love. And it's an endurance inspired by hope. So really, we've got to look at faith, love, and hope. They're the big three, aren't they? Um, it's such a big, these three belong together so much so that they actually occur together at least eight times in the New Testament. And it's not just from the pen of Paul the Apostle. Peter, who also wrote a couple of books in the New Testament, he writes about these three. And even the mysterious writer of Hebrews, we don't know who that is exactly, writes about them. But let me just show you one example from Paul and how these belong together. Look at Colossians, another ancient letter. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel. Already? They're, they belong together. And you can find at least seven other examples where they come together in a few short verses. Faith, hope, and love, or faith, love, and hope. 
So you see, if there is a slowing down or a stalling in our Christian lives, you can bet that something has gone wrong with the engine that runs on faith, love, and hope. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at them each in turn. Faith. You've probably heard me say this before, but faith is one of the most misunderstood religious words around. You can tell by the way people use it. I have faith. My faith is a private thing. Or I don't have your faith. You know, the way we use it, we, it's almost like faith is some sort of special, mystical, religious feeling that some have, that some don't, and that we can have in different amounts. That's not how the Bible speaks about faith. The Bible's definition to have faith is to trust. Trust is another perfectly good word for faith. To rely on, to depend. And when you use those words instead of faith, you, it suddenly doesn't make sense to talk about for the faith, faith in the way that we often talk about. I mean, someone says, I have reliance. Or I have dependence, or I have trust. Right? Those sentences don't make any sense on their own because you want to ask, um, okay, you have reliance, what on? You have dependence, what are you depending on? You have trust in who, right? That's actually what faith means. It's actually all about trusting, depending on, relying on something or someone. Not some sort of mystical religious feeling that some have and some don't. No, the faith that saves Christian faith well, we're trusting in, relying on, depending on something that God did for us in actual history in the past, real events that actually happened, more specifically, faith in an actual historical person. And of course, that person is Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. I wonder what you think about immediately when I say, what is the gospel? Define what the gospel is. How would you define it? What, what is it? Well, the content. I know it means good news, but what is that good news? I think most of us would think of immediately think of a set of beliefs, right? Or maybe some of us will think about a gospel summary like ones that you might have learned in the past, like two ways to live or three circles. Now, that's not wrong, but it's not enough. It's not the full picture. You see, for the earliest Christians, and we know this from their writings in the first centuries especially, when the earliest Christians think of the gospel, they're actually thinking of the gospels capital G, the Gospels, as in the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The earliest Christians, when they meant Gospel, they meant Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Jesus' entire life, death, resurrection, as recounted by these writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the Gospel according to Matthew is Matthew's account of the entire life of Jesus. In other words, the Gospel to the earliest Christians is actually a person, not just a list of what the person did for us, but actually who he is. Jesus is the good news. His life, his story is the good news. So coming back to faith, the faith that saves is then a faith that trusts, depends, relies on, clings to a person, Jesus, and follows him. Now, am I just quibbling over definitions? Why is this important? I'll tell you why. Because remember, fruitfulness comes from faith. Works come from faith. Believing in a set of doctrines on their own generally doesn't produce much work and fruit, does it? It just stays in your head. But if you're in relationship with a person, if you're following a person, Jesus, if you're trusting on, depending, relying on, clinging to Jesus, all of a sudden, it starts making sense why it naturally produces work, 
produces fruit. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me or stay in me or dwell in me and I in you, you will, not you may or you might, you will. It's inevitable. It has to happen that you will bear much fruit. Because it's impossible to be close to Jesus and not be utterly changed by Jesus, right? Like you look at every person that Jesus interacted with in the Bible, in the Gospels. They're so changed by Him. That's what it's like to be close to Jesus. So let me ask you, has your faith gone from actual relationship of following Jesus to maybe just believing in certain things and just doing certain things? Is that what your faith has become? It's not actually about following Jesus anymore. That would be like a marriage that grows cold because it's centered around activities, what you do, rather than the intimacy of who you are in relationship with each other. Right? We can see how a marriage would grow cold in that. Has your faith gone cold because it's shifted from a person just to stuff you believe in, just to things that you do? If you want to renew your faith, if you want to revitalize your faith, then really the answer is what? Spend time with the person, Jesus, who is alive. Commune with him. Speak to him. And maybe here's an idea. Reread and dwell in the pages of those gospels again. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I can't stress enough. Being a Christian isn't just about believing in a set of things, doing some stuff. It's about getting to know a person, Jesus, who is alive and wants to know you. Ask me about it if you want to find out more. So that's faith. Faith that produces work. What about love? Well, of the big three, Paul is in no doubt which is the most important. It's this one. He actually says in 1 Corinthians, another place where you see them come together, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. See, love is so powerful that you get this. Love is so powerful that even those without faith and without hope can experience the power of love, yeah? Like, get this, our world is dark and fallen, and even though our world is so dark and fallen, love is so built in to the way this universe operates that even in the darkest places in a godless world, people can still experience the power of love. You get that? And you don't have to be a Christian to experience the power of love. It's everywhere. It's in our universe. And the reason is because, and this is why love is the greatest, the reason is because, of course, God is love. Yeah? The Bible says God is love. Not just God is loving or that God loves. No, He is love. Love is the very essence, the DNA of God. And so though love is stamped in all of creation, we want to look at God's love because God's love is what's unique about love and what makes it the greatest. Did you know that the ancient Greeks, um, the Bible was written in a, in a dialect of Greek, sorry, the New Testament was, they have seven or eight words for love. I won't go through each one of them. Which meant that when the New Testament writers wrote in Greek, they, they had lots of choices to choose from. And the one they ended up choosing especially for the love of God, is one of the ones that wasn't used a lot in ancient Greek literature, but it was actually the most appropriate. You look down this list and a lot of you will know which one they chose. It's the last one. It's the one agape love. Because only that word could capture God's love 
shown to us in Jesus. Let me tell you about a man called Michael Orr, or Michael Orr. He was born in 1986. He was born one of 12 children. He's African-American. His mom was a crack cocaine addict. His dad was in prison and eventually murdered in prison. As a kid and in high school, he jumped from foster care to foster care to foster care. And when a lady called Leanne Tui found Michael, he was at her daughter's school, but he was basically homeless. He didn't have a change of clothes in winter. He slept in the school gym to just to keep warm. But she took him in, and her family cared for him, bought him clothes, paid for his school fees, gave him his own room, in fact, gave him their home to live in. Eventually, they adopted him. Through their love, his life was completely turned around. His talent for football got him through to university, and then eventually as a professional NFL player. His story, you might be familiar if you've seen the 2009 film, The Blind Side. That's Michael Orr. You see, when the New Testament speaks about God's great agape love, it's a little bit like that. It is a rags-to-riches story or a sinners-to-saints story, an orphans-to-adopted story. Look at 1 John chapter 3 says, See what great love, it's that word agape, the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. And how does God do all this for us? Well, He sacrifices His very best while we were at his, our very worst. He who was rich became poor so we could become rich. He who was holy and pure took on our sins so we could become saints. He who was the beloved son was cut off from his father so we could be adopted. See, there isn't even a human equivalent to that kind of love. God's agape love. Now, right here you might be thinking, wait, 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 hang on here. Isn't love in faith, love, and hope, isn't that talking about our love more than God's love? I mean, faith is clearly our faith. Hope is our hope. Then by extension, love should be talking about our love, not God's love, right? Why are we spending all this time talking about God's love? I'll tell you why. It's because you can't even start talking about our love without first starting with God's love. Because when someone, it's only when someone experiences God's love like that, that it can start that chain reaction, that it can overflow into our love for God and then our love for others. And by the way, you know that before Michael Oa experienced the Tui family's love, it's because they themselves had experienced a greater love. The Tui family were Christians. So they had experienced God's love and they were just passing on the love that they themselves experienced from God to this homeless teenage kid. You see, only God's love can produce the kind of labor that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians. Even labor to the extreme. Because remember, the word means toil. It means hard work. Look at what Paul says about his... It's that word he uses. I have labored, same word as in 1 Thessalonians. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern of all the churches. This is Paul the missionary, Paul the pastor writing. 
This is how extreme his labor for other people gets. And only God's love can bring that about. I want to talk to you if you're a ministry leader in whatever form, CG leader, Sunday school teacher, um, help out at the sound desk, in whatever way you serve, if you're one of those people, I wonder if you at this stage of the year, are you tired? Are you tired? Are you wanting to give up? You wouldn't be alone, would you? Like, I get it. I feel the same way many, many times and even more so now. If you're feeling tired, if you feel like giving up, if you're feeling burnt out, yeah, you're not alone. Because it's labor. It's toil. It is hard. But without God's love overflowing in us, you know what? If we're not motivated by love, we're not filled by love, we're not overflowing with God's love, we will only go so far but not further in our love for others, right? Isn't that true? Like service, ministry, hospitality, charity, good deeds, kindness, it will never cross into labor and toil. We'll only go as far as we are comfortable with, but no further. See, only when we are soaked to overflowing with God's love for us that labor and toil and sacrifice for others become possible, yeah? Which means that an intellectual understanding of God's love is not enough. Like, I know I'm not telling you anything new. But as long as God's love remains just in our heads, yes, I know God loves me. Yes, I know Jesus died for me. But not an experience. It will never overflow into toil and labor. You see what Romans 5 says? God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I talked about it last week in my sermon. It's what we looked at in Alpha just this last week. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, experiencing God in our lives to the full in the Holy Spirit is not an optional extra, right? Remember what I said last week? Holy Spirit is the key. And so if you're feeling like dry and empty, not able to labor on, then like last week, the challenge is to ask God, Lord, fill me again with your spirit so that I might overflow. Because only as I experience your love through the Holy Spirit, not just intellectually, no, experience his love again, then it can overflow. Last of our big three, hope. If you like, there is a past, present, and future to these three. Like faith is anchored in the past, love and experience of the present, hope points us to the future. And of course, biblical hope isn't just wishful thinking, all right? The Bible, when it talks about hope, is something more like waiting. It's waiting for future promises that haven't yet been fulfilled. So wishful thinking hope is when we say things like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, versus something much more sure. Biblical hope is much more like, those of you who are graduating this year, I'm waiting to get my degree at graduation. That doesn't use the word hope, but that's actually what hope means. It's going to happen, just hasn't happened yet. You're waiting for it. Now, we're going to talk more about gospel hope in our last sermon in this series. But for now, I just want you to notice one simple thing. Where is your hope located? Look at verse 3 again. Your endurance inspired by hope, here's the key, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Jesus. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Our hope is in Jesus. Let me um, use 
the words of an ancient catechism. It's an ancient confession, the way that people learn the basics of uh, the gospel. The first one of the Heidelberg Catechism reads this. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? In other words, where's your hope? What is your hope? The answer is this. My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like to have our hope in Jesus. In 2019, Pastor Ben Shaw had a toothache. It turned out to be aggressive cancer. A month after his diagnosis, Ben uh, had surgery to remove the cancer that was growing in his jaw. He and his wife were told that their surgery would cure him, but no, the cancer came back. In June 2020, after extensive treatment, Ben was told he may only have 12 months to live. He died this year, almost exactly 12 months later, in June. Before Ben died, he wrote a book, that book. And his good friend, John Dixon, you might know John Dixon, have heard of him, interviewed Ben before he died on his podcast. And this is what Ben Shaw said. He said this before he died. I'm not saying that God gives me all the answers. I don't know why I have cancer at this time in my life but I see God's long game. I see the bigger picture and it brings me great peace and contentment that I am loved and that Christ died for me. I'm forgiven and I can be in relationship with God. I'll be okay in the end. This is just a moment in a much, much bigger story. You want to know what hope in our Lord Jesus Christ looks like? In life and in death, in good health and in cancer. That's what it looks like. And you can see why this kind of hope produces endurance, right? This kind of hope will keep you going. See, I wonder if you feel like giving up in whatever sphere, whether it's a personal life, in your spiritual walk, in church ministry, whatever. What area of your life do you feel like giving up? It's revealing, actually. So I want you to just sit with what you feel like giving up. Because where in our lives we feel like giving up actually reveals something. You know what it reveals? It reveals where your hope is. It really does. Where you feel like giving up, remember, hope produces endurance. So if endurance is wavering, then it has something to do with hope. Yeah? So anytime you feel like giving up, ask, what does it show me about where my hope actually lies? Not what I tell people, not what it's supposed to be, but where it actually lies. What really motivates me? Is it hope in Jesus or is it something else? See, it's entirely possible, isn't it, to be loving and serving others inspired by hope that is not ultimately in Jesus. Like you can love others because you feel obligated to pay them back. You can love others because it makes you feel good about yourself. You can serve others because it brings recognition and appreciation. And you see, if that's where our hope, confidence, motivation lies, then of course the moment it gets tough, those things we place our hope in will make us want to give up because they're not enough to sustain endurance, are they? 
only if our hope is solidly locked in Jesus. And that's why suffering in the Bible for, for, for followers of Jesus can be also really revealing. It can actually reveal what actually can't be moved by life or by death. Suffering can actually bring us closer to God because all of a sudden Jesus is all we have and then we realize Jesus is all we've needed all along. Where is your hope? Where is your motivation? Where is your ultimate delight? What is the reward that motivates you? Is it in Jesus and only in Jesus? I'm going to get the band up. We're going to get ready to sing in a moment. But I want you to just know one thing before I finish up. And that is how important this is. Okay? You want to talk about faith, love, and hope? Right? This is so important. Nothing fuels faith, love, and hope like corporate worship. Like, it's unsurprising if we've grown cold over the last months, years. Because it's like hot coal, right? You've ever had a, done a barbecue with hot coals? What happens when you take those red glowing or white coals and you remove them from the pile and you separate them? They're going to eventually individually grow cold. They stay warm and hot together. We need each other. We need this. See, there will be no relaunching of our faith, love, and hope without a commitment to get back into life together as a church. And those rhythms of gathering, of worship, of fellowship, of Bible and prayer, yes, it feels sometimes like you've got to drag yourself to it. But let me tell you, it's worth it because faith, love, and hope get hot when we're in it together. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would refresh and renew us with a vision of the good news of Jesus. Refresh our faith, renew our love, energize our hope, because we want to be fruitful and faithful in the year and the years to come. Amen.